Good morning, everybody. Once again, wanted to thank Kara for that very beautiful song. Thank you so much. If you'd like to turn in your Bibles to the second chapter of Hebrews, there's a a story in Matthew 14, actually, that just might capture the whole Christian life in one image. Jesus had gone up alone on the mountain to pray. The disciples had pushed off from shore together in a boat and sometime between three and six in the morning by our reckoning as a storm was raging out on the sea and they were in serious danger of capsizing they made out a figure right just just walking towards them on the water and it's jesus it's the creator of the wind and the waves himself it is the lord of chaos walking on the water and so peter says in the midst of this storm if that's really you Tell me to come to you on the water. And Jesus says to him, come. And can you imagine that first step out of the boat as he put his foot down on the raging water, the other foot in the boat, maybe as he held it there trying to decide whether or not he was going to actually step down. And maybe he closed his eyes and put his weight down on it, stepped out of the boat, and he didn't sink. Imagine the feeling he had when he didn't sink. How's he not sinking? Well, because it really was Jesus standing out there on the water and jesus is doing all of this jesus is keeping peter from sinking how lord is this jesus right he wasn't reciting some spell there was no wand or tricks it was just him and peter begins to walk towards him eyes fixed on jesus but you know the story most of you know the story he heard the wind he saw the waves and in the dark during the storm He took his eyes off Jesus. The wind and the waves were all that Peter could see. And he forgot. He forgot the voice that called him out of the boat where he was going to die if he stayed in it. He forgot that voice. And he began to sink. So he cries out into the darkness, right into the storm. Lord, save me. And the word says that immediately Jesus reached out his hand and took hold of him. Oh, you of little faith. Why did you doubt? Now think about that. What do you mean, why did, why did I doubt? I'm, I'm walking on water. I'm a human being. It's storming. Because it has nothing to do with the wind and the waves and the storm. It was Jesus. Hindsight's twenty twenty. We know why he doubted. He took his eyes off of Jesus. He saw the wind. He heard the storm. Now, you and I can't see Jesus like Peter did that night. But if you think about that for a second, what do we tend to think? We always think that faith would be easier if Jesus was standing right in front of us, but apparently not. Apparently not. The wind and the waves are just as loud when Jesus is standing right in front of you as they are when he isn't. That's why Hebrews is here. We have to stop seeing with our eyes. I don't mean we take some blind leap of faith into nothing and hope for the best with no reason or rationality. I mean, we replace seeing with listening. We see with our ears. We walk by faith and not by sight. And this message of great salvation proclaimed to us by Jesus Christ, we not only find an all-sufficient, redeeming, victorious, and reigning Savior, we find a Savior who became one of us so that we could endure to the end, so that the message of great salvation proclaimed by him would bring us all the way home. Throughout Hebrews, the author is creating a portrait of this Savior for us, a place to fix our eyes by paying much closer attention with our ears to the message of great salvation, which is really the message of a great Savior. And beloved, we must learn to agree with God's word. Because our tendency is not to drift towards deeper insight into the gospel. It's, it's, we do not naturally drift towards our need to pay much closer attention to it. Our natural drift, our tendency is to move away from it, right? The wind and the waves of doubt, of unbelief, of disillusionment, of suffering and trials, of our own belief that we can secure our place in the world to come by our own effort and our own good works. This is the storm that's constantly raging in our souls that will blow us off course if in the midst of that we neglect the gospel, the message 
of great salvation. Just like we saw in Galatians. It's not that these believers were in danger of a wholesale embrace of Satanism or moral relativism or some form of cult. They were in danger of putting their hope for salvation, for stability and security in the law and their own ability to earn God's favor and secure his salvation through their performance when Jesus had already made purification for sins. And since he had to embrace anything else for our hope and our salvation, even if it was God's prior revelation, is fatal. It's fatal to our souls. If you're able, would you stand with me as we read Hebrews chapter 2. I'll read verses 5 through 9, but we'll make our way this morning to the end of the chapter. Hebrews 2, 5. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come of which we are speaking. It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him. You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You have crowned him with glory and honor. Putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him. He left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him. But we see him. Who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your perfect word. We thank you for revealing it to us. And God, I pray this morning that you would please overcome me, that I might preach and overcome every doubt and unbelief that we might listen. And I ask and pray this in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. You may be seated, everyone. For it was not to angels that God subjected the world to come, of which we are speaking. That's what we've been talking about. The author is saying, our Lord Jesus has been exalted to the place of highest authority in the universe by God the Father himself. He is the king of a new world. Right, A whole new order, a new heavens, a new earth, a world that began actually on Easter Sunday morning when he rose victorious from the grave. A world that exists now but one we can't see. A world that is coming that will one day break upon this world to the extent that the world as we know it, this world as we know it will be swallowed up by that one. God the Father has made all of it subject to the one person, his son, Jesus Christ. That's what the author has been talking about. He says when he talks about the exaltation of Jesus, a world to come. A world where everything exists in the precise order and place God assigned to it. A world where there is no sin, no suffering, no evil, no sickness, no pain, no decay. It's a world filled with joy and peace in the perfect and unbroken worship of and fellowship with the Son. That's the world Jesus rules. And the author reveals amazingly to us that the Bible, somewhere he says, although I think he's being coy, as though you should know this, is what he's saying. The Bible's already addressed this in verses 6 through 8 when he says, It has been testified somewhere, what is man that you are mindful of him? Or the son of man that you care for him? He's building the case that the whole Old Testament and all of it bears witness to Christ in the first person is what we're going to discover You made him for a little while lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor, putting everything in subjection under his feet. Now in putting everything in subjection to him, he left nothing outside his control. It turns out that Psalm 8, which is what the author's quoting from here, is David's reflection, not ultimately on himself or on all humanity, but on Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's who Psalm 8 is finally and fully about. He was made for a little while lower than the angels, the ministering spirits. Maybe that's why the people here were thinking of doubting his sufficiency, because after all, he he came in human flesh, right? How do you believe a mere human being is the exalted son of God? What you listen to the scripture. For a little while, the heir of all things, 
the creator of the world, the radiance of the glory of God, the exact imprint of his nature, the one who upholds the universe by the word of his power, the one who made purification for sins and then sat down at the right hand of God, of the majesty on high, the one to whom God the Father said, your throne, O God, is forever and ever, the one sitting at God's right hand until God the Father makes all his enemies into a footstool for his feet. Yes, for a little while, he became one of us down here. God added humanity to the pre-existent, eternal divinity of Jesus to such an extent that the word literally became flesh, human flesh, and dwelt among us. And he died here, just like us. But if he hadn't risen from the dead, right? If what they had heard about him wasn't entirely true, then was he really as sufficient a savior as they needed. That's what's beginning to creep in here. Could he really be enough as one of us to secure us before God forever? God says in the middle of verse 8 that when he put everything in subjection to Jesus, he left nothing outside his control. Now, follow the text here. Let's be honest. Is that what the world looks like? That Jesus is in absolute control of everything and everything has been placed in subjection to him. Is that what it looks like with our eyes? Not even close. Not even close. When you are suffering, when you are suffering, when you are praying the heavens down, so to speak, and nothing is happening, does it feel like there isn't anything outside his control? Right When you can't overcome the sins you so greatly struggle with, does it look like everything is under his control, that he's making everything submit to him? When there's genocide or a famine or a mass shooting, does it look like he's, he's got the whole world in his hands? Right. When we're not progressing like we think we should be, when we aren't getting better like they said we would, when life is not coming together in this nice little package like they all said it would down at the church, if I just put God first in everything, whatever that means? Does it look like everything is in subjection to Jesus and nothing is outside his control? If that's true, why is it like this? Why is it like this? Why am I like this? Why is the world like this? The last part of verse 8. At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, beloved. If we will just listen, the Bible is talking right to our hearts every time. We, we, we go to the Bible with, with a preset idea of what an answer to our questions would look like. The Bible, the word of God speaking to us, does not answer what we are asking. It answers what we genuinely need, which is why it looks the way that it does. We do not yet see everything in subjection to him, most of all, ourselves. How do you hang on when you find no evidence that God would accept you? Right? These are the real questions here. The questions about why is the world the way it is, everybody asks those. The believer who's been awakened to a new world by the grace of God is thinking, why am I not equal to that? Why am I still like this? Why is my world still breaking down all around me so often? How do you keep believing when you're under the constant threat of the world and your circumstances? Where do you turn? They were thinking in the midst of their weaknesses and struggles and inabilities and threats. They were thinking of returning to the law and the old covenant system. Why? Because we are all accountants by nature. Let me measure it. Right? This, this, at least you can measure obedience to the law. At least if there's a code to live by, I can know whether or not I'm living by the code. But this whole living by faith? How do you measure that? How, how do you measure your level of faith? Simply trusting that Jesus is securing everything for me? 
That doesn't, that doesn't cut it for me. Just believe. I mean, how can I believe when it looks like everything is out of control? When I can't master myself, when I can't bend the world enough into what I need it to be in order to feel secure. People don't listen to me. They don't do the things I want them to do. The world doesn't work the way I want it to work. And you're telling me you just look at Jesus and live by faith. What do I do when I can't find an identity? How can just look at Jesus be enough for me? At present, we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him. This is the Bible's answer at not seeing everything in subjection to him, seeing him. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God, here's why he was made human for a little while, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. That's the answer. Jesus said in John chapter 5, to those Pharisees that knew their text so well, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have life, and I tell you they bear witness about me, but you refuse to come to me that you might have eternal life? Do you hear the sacred text in Hebrews 2.9? Do you hear it speaking to your heart? When we are called as a people, as individuals, to look only to Jesus for hope, for security, for endurance, for identity, for confidence, before we complain that that isn't relative to my specific needs, before we complain that this can't possibly be enough, we have to comprehend who we are being told to look at, who we are being told to see. It isn't just another person. It's Jesus. No, I don't see everything in subjection to him. I don't see it. What I see is war and famine and homeless people and cancer and children dying and marriages crumbling and war and conflict and political unrest and the mockery of God. And then it gets really bad. I look in the mirror and I see an ongoing struggle in me with the most basic and vile of sins, a lack of maturity, a lack of progress. I see dysfunction and trouble in my own relationships, financial struggles, whatever they are. I see a constant pull towards the darkness in me. Yes, that's what we can see with our eyes. The Bible does not ever ask you to abandon reality. Ever. It doesn't, the answer is not close your eyes, say a chant and imagine it's not real. It is real. All of it's real. You see what the author is doing? He just did. Yeah, he just said it. The Bible just admitted it. Absolutely. You don't see everything in subjection to him. The Bible addresses the elephant in the room. When you look at 8 and 9, do, do you see how relevant the message of great salvation, where Jesus Christ is revealed to us, is to the deepest and most pressing questions of our whole existence? Do you know who Jesus is? Do you know what he has accomplished? Because we feel like look to Christ, pay much closer attention to what you've already heard, is like cough medicine for cancer. Right? It, just, it, it doesn't, it doesn't feel like it's enough. We need more than that. I need more than that. That doesn't help. I need more than that. Do you know why we say that? Because we're looking at the wind and we're listening to the waves. That's why it doesn't sound like enough. Do, do we really believe Jesus is not enough to cut it? No. We know better than that. But when the wind is howling and the waves are raging, what we can see the Bible just pulls us back again and again and again to the same answer, the same thing. That's all the pulpit has for you. Jesus Christ, everything else is noise. Everything else is noise. 
Stop looking at the waves. Stop listening to the wind. Because Jesus Christ is standing on all of it. Right? For a little while, this majestic, eternal, almighty son of God walked on this earth, earth, this earth with us, but he wasn't here to do recon. He wasn't here to look around, feel that it was like, feel what it was like, go back and give a report. He came to die for sinners. You know why he's been crowned the way it's described of him in chapter one, verses five through 13, here in verses seven and eight. Do you know how Jesus obtained all of that? He died for sinners. He tasted death for everyone. The author takes them right to the message of great salvation. He takes them to the cross, to the death of Jesus, when he realizes that the problem is where they fix their eyes. Do you see what he's doing? He's just doing what he said he was going to do in, in the first part of two. I want you to pay much closer attention to what you've heard. Then he builds on what they've already heard. When he realizes that what they can see is damaging their faith, where does he take them? To therapy? To five steps to a better marriage? No. To five steps to getting the raise at work? To ten steps to dealing with your difficult child? No. People do that. The Bible doesn't. The Bible just takes you right to Jesus every time to the cross where he died for you, where he was your substitute. That's the Bible's answer. Your soul is safe in Christ with God. This world, it's never going to pan out. Ever. You can read a million books. You can go to a thousand conferences. It won't fix the problems. The Holy Spirit knows we can't see everything in subjection to Jesus, including our own selves. But he wants them to know. He wants us to know. When he says, pay much closer attention to this great salvation, he wants us to know we've been redeemed. We've been saved. We've been transferred out of this kingdom. We just aren't home yet. And if we try, if we keep thinking that what Jesus came to do is make heaven on earth, we're going to constantly be disillusioned. There is no heaven on earth. The world to come has been subjected to Jesus. In this one, we don't see that. The Bible talks to us. If we just listen, if we just listen, it's answering the questions. In the gospel, the message of great salvation, what, what do we see there? You, you can't, the, the gospel can't be something in your peripheral vision or in the background as something that only addresses how you get into the kingdom of God. It, it's, it's everything. It's not the ABCs. It's the A to Z. It's everything. What, what is the gospel telling me about my Savior? What do I see in the message of great salvation? I see the Christ who died risen and exalted to God's right hand where all his enemies, all of our enemies are being made into a footstool for his feet it may not look like that. It may look like wind and it may look like waves, but here's the thing. He's standing on them. I see in the one seated there also two nail pierced hands. What a gift that the scars remain in the glorified body of Christ. What's that for? That's for you and me. When I look at the one exalted to God's right hand, I see two nail-scarred hands, two nail-pierced feet. I see the one seated at God's right hand. I see in him all the purification for all of my sin. All of it. I see in the one seated there, for me, the guarantee that one day everything will be made right. It could all look like Friday afternoon, but Sunday's coming all the time. All the time for you and me, believer. All the time. Sunday is coming. When we gather here, these are meant to be little reminders and whispers that the real Sunday is coming. The forever Sunday. If I look at the news, if I look at the paper, 
If I look at the internet, if I look at me, it can get so bad, I forget Jesus even exists. And beloved of God, close your eyes then. Listen to the word of God. Close your eyes. Listen to the word of God. Pay much closer attention to what you've heard. Because by the very grace of God, apart from any works or any merit of our own, having done nothing to earn it or deserve it, God sent his son into the world to taste death on behalf of everybody who actually deserved to die. God doesn't just see the what of our existence. He sees the why. So he sent his son. When has Jesus not been the answer to the questions of mankind's greatest needs? From God's perspective, our maker, the son is the answer. He is the way. He is the truth. He is the life. God doesn't just see what's wrong. He sees why it's wrong. So he sends Jesus. And that son accomplished everything God required, sealing it all by his death on a cross. He became what we are, that we might become what we are not, but what he is. And it's finished. That's finished. How does the letter start? After making purification for sins. It's done. Right? Finished. He won it. He's seated there right now. He's waiting to return. To wrap it all up. To bring a new heavens and a new earth. And this morning, struggling saint. Broken down believer. Sinner with no hope. He is looking right into your heart. And oh, how he loves you and me. We can't see the subjection of everything to Jesus. I understand that. The Bible understands that. But we can see Jesus. Where is he? Well, he's at God's right hand. That place has been taken. Heaven has won, is what that means. The fat lady called earth is singing. She's singing. It's over. Jesus reigns. And he reigns for you and for me. And he isn't just seated at the right hand of God the Father. Although that's such a blessed thought for our hearts. He is seated there as one of us. As one of us. Look at 10 verse 10 to 13. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist in bringing many sons to glory. Should make the founder of their salvation perfect through suffering. That's an eye-opener. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one source. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. That's Jesus talking to God the Father in the Psalms. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. That's the Messiah talking. We go from Jesus at the right hand of God to Jesus in his humanity. Because we need both for our souls. Why did he taste death for us? Because... The fitting thing for the savior of suffering humans is that a suffering human be their substitute and redeemer in verse 10. That's fitting from God's perspective. That's how it lines up. That's how it all works best. All things exist for and by almighty God. And we find here almighty God designed a universe where he would one day bring many sons to glory. Right? He would call many wayward rebels and prodigals home for an eternal feast. Those who had once turned against him and became his enemies would one day be brought back to his table, brought back into his family. That would require someone to stand in their place, to right all the wrongs, to pay all their debt. It would require salvation, which means it would require a savior. And God did not design a plan where these many sons would come to glory by proxy, but only by suffering. You see, Jesus did not become our savior by God's design, without knowing what it is to literally suffer as one of us. Suffering is central to the human existence. It's central to our salvation. God never designed that we would feel like orphans and aliens once we got saved. 
This is all about closeness. This is all about closeness. Pay much closer attention to one that came so close to you. So close to you that he became what you are to redeem you. So that you would know he knows you personally. Beloved, this cosmic, reigning, sin-purifying Jesus has walked a thousand miles in all of our sinful shoes. The only difference, he never sinned. In fact, God's design was that his perfection as our Savior would be obtained only by the suffering he would endure by becoming our perfect sacrifice and never buckling under the pressure. That's, you want to talk about suffering. So now our sanctifier, the one who separates us from the world to present us to God, and all the ones for whom he's doing that all have the same origin, God himself, the father of the son and many sons. And that is why Jesus is not ashamed to call you and I brother. Now just let that sink in for a minute. Jesus, this Jesus is not ashamed of me. He's not ashamed of you. He has made us so presentable to Almighty God, so presentable to God that there is no longer any place for shame. Do you hear the word of God this morning? That is for your soul. That's for your soul. Jesus Christ, the majestic one we read about in chapter 1, verses 5 to through 13, is not ashamed to call us his brothers. I guarantee you, everyone in this room right now has a family member or a close friend that they wish didn't have the same last name. Somebody, somewhere out there, we're ashamed of. Ashamed that they know us, that if they saw us in public and tried to associate with us, we'd wish for a quick death, anything, so that people don't associate them with us. Right? Have you ever felt that? The, the shame of knowing somebody because of their actions or their reputation? Just think about for a minute what we are, what we've done. And the one who laid the foundation of the earth in the beginning, the heavens are the works of his hands. They will perish, but he'll remain. The one whom all the angels worship, the one whose throne is forever and ever, the one who loves righteousness and hates wickedness, And yet because he became one of us to give his life to save us and was completely successful in all his work, he's not ashamed to call you and I brother. This is the Bible's answer. When you don't belong, when nothing makes sense, when the answers will not come, Jesus is not ashamed of you. He is not ashamed of your struggle. He is not ashamed of your record. He is not ashamed of your story. He is not ashamed of your questions. He became one of us to feel it all, beloved. So that when your day came, you would know Jesus is saying, That's my little brother holding us up to the cosmos. This is my little brother. How can this be? It it so lifts the soul up that the wind and the waves become blurry and Jesus becomes clear. That's what the gospel is meant to do. He's not ashamed of you right now. He's not ashamed of what you are now. 
with all your baggage and all your struggles. He is forever now also one of us to the extent that in Christ we all have us and him all have the same origin, the same source, him as a savior and sanctifier, us as saved and sanctified, God the Father. Jesus Christ will never be ashamed of his own blood, no matter what they do. And to prove that, the author takes two Old Testament quotations, one from Psalm 22, 22 and verse 12, the other from Isaiah 8, 17 and 18 in verse 13, and he puts them both on the lips of Jesus himself. That's what the authority of the New Testament does as we understand the Old Testament. Hebrews helps us understand how to approach the Old Testament as Christians. The Old Testament doesn't occasionally say something that predicts Jesus. It doesn't relate to him casually by associations that might be made if we have an eye for it. The Old Testament is the very word about Jesus by Jesus. The whole Bible is ours that we might know Jesus. The Psalms are ultimately in their fulfillment the words of Jesus himself as our substitute, as our representative as our high priest. In Psalm 22, as one who suffers like us, that's the context of Psalm 22 that he's pulling from in verse 12. It's the suffering of the Messiah. Psalm 22 starts out with, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's as a fellow sufferer that Jesus speaks to us. I will tell of your name to my brothers in the midst of the congregation. I will sing your praise. Beloved, if we would just see with our ears, do you know what we might hear? Jesus Christ singing about God the Father to us. He will testify to his Father in our midst that we might trust in him. In Psalm 22, now in Hebrews 2.12 the words of Jesus to us as they always were to his people. In Isaiah 8, 17 and 18, Jesus unites us to himself so that we're one group of siblings who together place their trust in the Lord. God gave us to Jesus. That's how close we are. Salvation is not some mathematical transaction by which God settles books. It's a profoundly personal, deliberate, and intimate way for God to gather to his son a tribe of brothers and sisters who together with him will praise the Father for his faithfulness. God desired that oneness with his son for us. Jesus became a perfect savior for us, specifically by suffering along with his people, his family. It didn't have to go down that way. He didn't have to become one of us. It didn't, God is the one calling the shots. So when we say it had to be like this, says who? Says God. That's why it had to be like this, because God designed a salvation that would result in intimate closeness, not a mathematical reckoning of the books. That doesn't help anybody. Imagine trying to endure knowing that God doesn't really like you. He just cleared your debt. Imagine trying to endure if he was always looking at you with a little bit of resentment for costing his son his life. No, that's his design. It was his idea. God's obligated to nobody but God. It was his design that designed a salvation that meant he became one of us so that he could relate to us. So that in these moments of suffering, we might know he also suffered. I'm not alone. You're with me. When we read the scripture, we are reading Jesus' words on every page to his suffering people in this world as one who has also suffered in this world with them. Look at the final section, 14 to 18. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things that through death, see, the, the point of reference continues to be the cross, that through death, He might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is, the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. You remember Galatians? Therefore, therefore, because he helps the offspring of Abraham, his brothers and sisters, his people, the many sons, 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. The author begins to make his central theological argument in Hebrews for these struggling believers, and it centers specifically on Jesus Christ as our high priest. Remember, only the author of Hebrews does that in the New Testament, and it's in a letter about endurance. That's no mistake. The author will press how Jesus became one of us so that he could be our high priest, not just so he could stand in our place, but so he could stand in our place as one of us. God deems that information as vital to our endurance, beloved. Since we are flesh and blood, Jesus became flesh and blood so that he could die and rise again. When Jesus rose again, he was destroying Satan as a human being. He was doing that work to destroy the one who has the power of death as a human being. Jesus wasn't magic. He lived by faith in the power of the Holy Spirit. He defeated what destroys all humans as a human, beloved. That's a big deal. That was for us, for our endurance, for our hope. A human being, fully God, yes. Fully divine, but also fully human. There is currently a human being seated at God's right hand. Jesus' destruction of the one who has the power of death by rising again from the dead frees us from slavery to it. That will not be the end of the story now. And it won't just be risen up for judgment. Now it is risen up for eternal life. In verse 16, that was the whole point of his helping us. He came to purchase a family, the family that God had given him, the offspring of Abraham. It's called here. We're called here. Remember Galatians 3. Remember how in this chapter, the descriptions for God's people have just been piling up if we've been watching. Back in chapter 1, we were those who will inherit salvation. Then it was everyone. But then that began to zero in on the many sons he is bringing to glory. Then children. Then now the offspring of Abraham. We've been in the story the whole time. We are his blood, his own family. And when the scripture calls him the propitiation for the sins of his people, it means he was put forward as the human representative to absorb the wrath of God on their behalf, of the offspring of Abraham. Somebody from the human side was required to be our representative in this new covenant. Both sides have to agree. But none of those God meant to save were able to do it. They can't keep the covenant from earth, from this side. Not one of the many sons had what it took to bring the rest of them to glory. So Jesus was made like his brothers in every respect so that he could serve as their high priest, mediating to God for us from earth as a human being with his blood and his righteousness. He will never stop doing that. He will never quit. He will always be sufficient. He will always be enough. He will always be perfect for you and me as one of us. This is what Jesus has done and is doing for all who believe in him. But notice in verse 18, the last verse, we aren't being told this simply so we'll have a proper academic Christology, doctrine of Jesus in our minds. That's not what it's for. That's not ever what it's for. The humanity of Jesus was so that we, those who will inherit salvation, the many sons God means to bring to glory, the children, the offspring of Abraham would know that we are not alone when we are tempted to defect. We're not alone in that. That was felt by our Savior. When we are tempted to turn away from God, to stop believing in him, to indulge the passions of our flesh, which will bring only death, that's why Jesus became a human being. Pay much closer attention 
to the one that came that close to you and I, beloved. Temptation is suffering. You see that in verse 18? Isn't that, that's powerful. That's helpful to me. Temptation is suffering. To constantly be pulled back towards the world when Jesus has reconciled us to God and given us life is so taxing after a while. It's like, I might as well just quit. I can't do this. I cannot endure. I can't stay focused on Christ. I can't pay much closer attention to Jesus. I feel so corrupted and stained and wrong. And then we do fail and it gets worse. How can you come back? How can you always come back? How can you make it right? How can you believe that you won't fall again? That's why Hebrews has been written, beloved. Did you know that our our Savior is fully God and he's fully human? He knows. He knows that we might say, though, well, yeah, but I mean, technically, he doesn't know what it's like to fail. No, he doesn't. That's why this is good news. You and I need to know that because he never failed, because Jesus never failed, you can always come back. You can always come back. Always. He will not turn you away. He just won't do it. You can always return. Always. Repentance is a pathway laid by the blood and righteousness of Jesus for you. He's our high priest all the time. It is never when I go before the Father that I'm standing there alone. Ever. The advocate is always with me. And his name is righteous. His blood is spotless. He's always there. Always sufficient. When we partake of this table, we remember We remember this. It's almost like we should do it every Sunday. It's for another time. Every time you and I return, every time you and I are too weary to go on, every time we fail to do what is righteous, every time we give in, he is ministering to God on our behalf as our faithful high priest. Imagine him. Tune your ear to heaven. Right? God have mercy on my little brother Tony. <laughs> have mercy on him. Here's my blood. Here's my righteousness. He never fails. Beloved, there's a there's one of us in heaven right now who never failed. And he is yours and he is mine. He is all we have. He's all we need. So beloved, remind yourselves as often as you can of who Jesus is for you. He reigns for us. He is singing in our midst about how glorious and trustworthy our father is. He left the presence of eternal glory to become a son who would join himself to us so that we would both call God our father. He is singing, beloved. Can you hear him? I know we can't hear him, but we can hear him in the Bible, in the text. He's preaching to us. When when I was there, I put my trust in the Father. He doesn't fail. He keeps his promises. Stay the course. I'm with you. I won't leave you or forsake you. We don't yet see everything in subjection to him. Most of all, our own wayward hearts. But if we will just listen to the world, to the word that's been proclaimed, we will see him. That's where he's seen. Beloved, close your eyes. Listen with your ears. Listen to the message of great salvation. Listen to your victorious and reigning savior. Singing songs of hope and deliverance and trust over you. Listen to him. Because he suffered, he's able to help you when you suffer, particularly, particularly when you suffer the weight of the temptation of this world, trying to pull you back to itself for life when here there is only death. How much do we long in the throes of our lives for someone 
just for a moment, that could step into our skin and feel what we feel and know what we know. We have that. We have that. Not in any other human being. His name is Jesus. He's our Savior, our High Priest. This doctrine is for you so that you won't abandon your faith. Because there's no reason to. Everything God requires from us, he's received it from Jesus. Just believe in him and rest. Just believe in Jesus and rest. He will take care of everything. He walked on water so that, not so you and I could think positively in difficult times. Jesus walked on water so that you and I would not stay in the boat of this world. We'll die in the boat. We're safer out on the storm with Jesus than we are in the boat. He walked on water so that you would know that's where he is when the storm is raging around you, so he'll get you all the way home. Just listen to him. Just listen to him. See with your ears the person of Jesus Christ in this message of great salvation. I'm going to pray. We're going to do a hymn of invitation together. I will be down front. If you need to pray for any reason, then we'll take the Lord's Supper together. If you would like to come forward and pray, again, I'm here. I want to be saved. You want to know Jesus Christ, or you've done that already. You want to come and make it known. You want to be baptized. You want to become a member of our church. This is the time. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the word of great salvation concerning your son, Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray that you would turn our hearts to you, that we might see with our ears, that we might listen to this message, to this person. And we ask and pray these things in his name. Amen.